We just passed November 5th, and maybe this is a poem that is familiar to you, and even if it's not, maybe you've heard it before. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fawkes and his companions did the scheme contrived to blow the king and parliament all up alive. Three score barrels laid below to prove old England's overthrow. But by God's providence, him they catch with a dark lantern lighting a match, a stick and a stake for King James' stake. And it goes on a little bit longer, but maybe you know this from history class. I remember uh, kind of capturing this in my mind more clearly when I was watching one of my favorite movies, V for Vendetta, an older movie now. But this was a poem, an old English poem, used to remind people of this treason planned in 1605 and the failed planned because they caught him. And they have this poem recited and remembered so that they would remember throughout anyone who hears it, in England especially, that treason will never be tolerated or forgotten. It was to remind people of a past event so that it would impact how they live in the present. In very similar ways, this is the goal and desire of Peter. He actually makes it very clear in verses 12 to 15. He's writing these things to cause them to remember, to remember truths of Jesus, to remember truths of the gospel, so that it would impact them as readers later on to live in light of this true event in Jesus. He tells us this purpose in verses 12 to 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. So he's saying, remember, remember, I want you to recall these things. He wants them to know these very important truths about God and Scripture and the Gospel because he wants them to be able to recall them, to use them when they face, and the main obstacle of this letter is false teachers and their false teaching. You, you do this. You kind of develop habits to help you remember things. One of the new habits that we have developed in my house as we're getting out of the house every morning, which is always a very chaotic scene. If you have little kids and you try and commute them to school every single day, and if you have kids in two different schools, you have this feeling. Just a lot of things happening. And and we have a lot of things you have to remember. We have to remember their school lunch. We have to remember their backpacks. We have to remember their jackets. But one of the things we've had to learn since the last two years is remember your mask. And so we have this, like, every single time before, as we're getting out of the door into our garage, like, remember, do you got your mask? And my kids will say, yeah, yeah, I know. And they know, but we still remind them every single time because they tend to forget at times. And if you, if you go to school without a mask, you can't go in. And it becomes this whole hassle. I have to go back home or figure out what do we do with a the mask. They can't wear adult sizes, so remembering, remembering the mask is like a habit in our life. And, and Peter wants the church, and he wants us as readers now, the church, to remember the truths of the gospel. And specifically, he wants us to remember this week the importance of the Word of God. He wants us to see, remember, and believe and experience the authority of the Word of God. The main opponent in this letter is false teachers who kind of attack the truths of God in three areas. In the first one he, they attack is the truthfulness of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God. And that's why Peter wants us this week to remember, as we're looking at this section, remember the authority of the Word of God. Remember and cling to the Word of God. And there are two reasons that he gives to us that we can trust the authority of the Word of God. 
And I want to look at those two reasons and then kind of unpack some implications and why it's important for us. The first reason we can trust the authority of the Word of God is that it's based on eyewitness accounts. The first reason is it's based on eyewitness experiences. People who saw, who heard the things that the Scriptures are talking about. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. False teachers were saying, and it's still true today, you know, these stories about Jesus that you're proclaiming, they're just made up. They're myths. They're exaggerations. I mean, the main challenge to the authority of the New Testament, the authority of the Word of God, has been, since then and has been now, that, you know, it's not like overt lies. Because people don't challenge the historicity of the person of Jesus, but they, they claim that these stories are innocently embellished, and as legends do over time, they kind of grow. And so someone has fishing stories, right? And so you caught up a 30-pound fish, which eventually becomes a 300-pound fish, which eventually becomes a 3,000-pound fish. You give it enough time, the, the poundage grows. And they're saying the same thing of Jesus' stories, that it started off as you know, a, a nice lesson about sharing your lunch. And all of a sudden it becomes Jesus you know, multiplying fish and loaves. You know, it just became exaggerated. That's what these false teachers are saying about the Word of God, about the apostles' testimony. And think about how these legends kind of grow. And this happens a lot. If you think about King Arthur. Many of you have read or seen or consumed different versions of this King Arthur story. And very likely there was a king named Arthur. But is it actually the same person and stories that happened? Or is it actually now more myth? than man, or more fable than fact. Peter says, the things that we're saying about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection, all that it means for our life, these are true things. We were eyewitnesses of this reality. And the interesting experience that he points to being an eyewitness of is not in this context the resurrection, although he is a witness of the resurrected Jesus. He's pointing to the transfiguration. And that's an interesting thing. And I think, as I began to think about this, this is very powerful. He describes the transfiguration in verses 17 and 18. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. And so they saw and they heard. This account of the transfiguration, which most of us kind of read and just kind of are surprised by and just don't really know what to do with. It's recorded in Luke 9 and Matthew 17. Just to refresh your memory, it's when Peter, James, and John, that inner three of Jesus' disciples, they go up to the mountain to pray, and they have this amazing experience where Jesus is transformed, and his face is shining brightly, his clothes are shining. And then Moses and Elijah appear, and they're having a conversation, and then they, they want to stay because it's an amazing thing. But then they hear this voice of God speaking about who Jesus really is. And all of a sudden, all that kind of disappears. A cloud envelops them, and they're alone. And they keep it to themselves, obviously, because if you try and tell people this experience, you're like, what are you talking about? Like, did you make... they, they knew that this would seem like a crazy thing. But now, after the resurrection and seeing the resurrected Jesus, this transfiguration event begins to make sense. And this helps us understand their eyewitness account and why it's authoritative. Let me present it to you this way. Recently, a really good movie came out called Shang-Chi. 
If you're into the Marvel Universe, uh, it's a great movie. My wife and I don't watch many movies in the theater. In fact, my wife doesn't like going to the theater, but she wanted to support Asian movies, and so we went to watch this, and I'm glad we saw it in the theater. I won't give you any spoilers because it's too new, and many of you haven't seen it yet. But if you, I'll give you one thing. Just I noticed this as I was watching it. Uh, I'm not a native San Franciscan, but any of you who are native, who grew up here, you know the streets of San Francisco, you'll see this right away if you watch it. How, you, you can't go down Stockton Street and then all of a sudden the camera pans and you're turning left on Noe Street. That doesn't make any sense if you know the streets of San Francisco. But you see this, there's a bus scene in it, I won't tell you much more, but there's like little weird things that aren't true of a San Francisco in it. But they, rec- they recorded and filmed parts of the movie in San Francisco. And it was recorded a number of years ago, but I remember seeing people post online that they saw you know, that they were filming it downtown and they filmed parts of it at the Fairmount downtown. And when people said that, you know, they, they could say, oh, this movie, Shang-Chi, is coming out. I saw the filming of it. They, they could say with great confidence because they saw a glimpse of the filming that this movie was going to come. And they could say, well, this great movie with Jung from Kim's Convenience is coming. They saw a glimpse of what's to come. In a similar way, this is what the transfiguration is. They saw a pre-released scene of the eternal reality. They saw Jesus in glory conversing with people who are with him in heaven forever. The future reality of Jesus in all his glory became present on that mountain for just a moment. And Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of this. They heard the voice of God, which is alluding to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 with God bringing in his kingdom of justice forever. They got to see a preview of Jesus' return. And so when the false teachers say, well, you know, all this talk about Jesus' resurrection and return, that's all exaggeration. No, they got to see it. They got to know this pre-released scene of this eternal reality of Jesus' return. Let me, let me unpack for you several reasons some apologetic reasons why the New Testament isn't an exaggeration, or it couldn't be an exaggeration. It's not a myth. There's lots of reasons that you can read in different resources. The, the reasons I'm going to give you, they're not original to me. There's tons of them. I'm just going to give you a few of them, though. You know the New Testament's not a myth. It's not exaggeration because of the timing of the writing of the New Testament. Just like I just mentioned how myths and legends kind of take time to grow, the, the writing of the New Testament happened way too early to be legend. Most of the writing of the New Testament happened within 20 to 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. The last one being about 60 years after his death and resurrection. And if you're writing it that close to the event, many of the people who were eyewitnesses would still be alive. And so people who would hear these supposed exaggerations, you could go ask them. And they could refute it. Like if someone made something up of an event today, and lots of people saw it, you could go talk to them. And eventually someone would say, no, that's not how it happened. Legends take hundreds, if not thousands of years to form when no one else is around to fact check it. But these letters, God was in his sovereign grace, having them, the apostles write these things down so that they would be early enough, so that they would be truthful, and that people in the early parts of the church could refute it or not and make it trustworthy. If you look at the content, and some of you, if you ever tried to read any of the Bible, if you want to read one testament, if you've never read the entirety of the Bible, which I encourage you to do, read the New Testament if you're going to read an entire testament. That's a great place to start. But if you get started in the New Testament, the first four books 
of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even if you were just to read those, another reason besides the early time of writing that these couldn't be myth is that the content of the New Testament is way too counterproductive. It's way too negative to be myth. Think about if you're trying to, as an apostle, build a platform of trustworthiness, you're trying to make people believe you, make sure that you're a trustworthy individual, if you read the New Testament, even just the first four books of the New Testament, the apostles seem like idiots. It looks like a recording of the Three Stooges. They're getting things wrong constantly. They're mean to children, right? They're bragging about who's best. Think about all that's happening in the Gospels. If Peter was trying to write an account, or if Peter wanted to build a platform of his trustworthiness or his authority, why would you record the things that are said about Peter? You remember what Jesus called Peter? And there's many bad people in the, in, in the history, many bad people in Scripture. You know who Jesus called Satan? Peter. He called him Satan. Would that make you someone trustworthy to people you're telling that you should listen to me? Imagine a church planner came to town and they have a new website and you're looking them up and you look on the leadership page and you see the lead pastor, Simon Peter, the one time that one guy was called Satan. Come and visit us. You belong to our church. You belong here. Welcome. Like That would just not be very... I mean, that wouldn't give you confidence to visit that church. But all the things, like he was called Satan, they're, they're mean to children, that they're, they're just not getting it. All that's there because it's true. All, if you look at the New Testament, there's so many things that are counterproductive to someone who would be trying to beef up their authority. And there's so many details in it. And the thing about myths is they often lack details. But the New Testament has tons of small details in it that seem sometimes like, why is this here? Because it's true. They're giving you details of a real true thing. In Mark's gospel, Mark most likely got the content of his gospel from talking to Peter. And he was probably just writing down the things from Peter. But in chapter 14, Mark, heading this, he kind of puts in this little two-verse like, detail. He talks about a man fleeing naked. Now, if you were at church service today and someone ran across the stage naked, you might not remember anything else about the day except for someone ran naked. Right? But you would know that that happened. He's writing this because he is saying this happened. Someone fled naked. In fact, most likely this is Mark who fled away naked because he was afraid. They grabbed his clothes and he ran because he was afraid of what would happen to him because they were arresting Jesus. Another reason, not only the timing, but not only the counterproductive nature of the content, but also, most importantly, this can't be myth because for the early apostles, it was way too costly for them. You can make up a story, try and get people to believe it, but you would do that because you wanted to gain something. And you see this throughout history. People make up stories to gather a crowd. Sadly, politicians do this all the time. They twist and make up stories. They, they create things to militarize people. They, get, they, they create things to get them something that they're pursuing. But if you look at the message of the early church, of the apostles, they gained nothing. They gained nothing. And they lost everything. It's, re- it's recorded in history. Almost all of the early church disciples and apostles were killed terribly. James is the half-brother of Jesus. 
And he's noted by a non-Christian historian, Josephus, to be the leader of the Jewish part of the church. He was stoned for his belief that Jesus was Lord and that he died and rose again and he would return. How many of you have an older brother? Raise your hands. If you have an older brother. How many of you have an older sibling? Keep your hands raised. How many of you have older siblings, right? So a little more of you, so you have older sisters. You can put down your hands. What would it take for you to believe your older sibling was God? Think about that. What would it take for you to be convinced that your older sibling is God? I mean, you could believe they're Satan, right? Or Satanic, at least. That's not hard to convince. But what would it take for you to believe that your older sibling who claims to be God is God? It would take something amazing, right? I mean, it's recorded in Scripture. James did not believe. He didn't believe that Jesus was God during his life. He believed because he saw the resurrected Jesus. And he paid for it with his life. It was way too costly. You could make up a story to gain something. But would you all, many, many hundreds of thousands of people, make up a story that would cost you your life? It's way too costly. The authority of the Word of God is trustworthy. It's something we should believe in because it's based on eyewitnesses of accounts of the resurrection. And Peter, James, and John had this unique experience of having this glimpse of eternity. This is going to happen. They saw it. Another reason that we should trust the authority of the Word of God is it was divinely inspired. One of the important doctrines of inspiration is anchored here in the verses 19 to 21. Look with me. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no scripture or prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When he says it's more fully confirmed, He's not saying that the apostles' word is better than the Old Testament, but it's more fully revealed. It's more fully exposed because the mystery of the Savior of the Old Testament is now revealed more fully in Jesus. And they saw the promises of the resurrection in Jesus. They saw a glimpse of the eternal reality of Jesus' glory. Now this is a very important text. When you're thinking about systematic theology, this text is used to define the inspiration of Scripture. We know Scripture is fully God and fully man, just like Jesus is fully God and fully man. Scripture is a human work. Jesus, or God and the Holy Spirit, did not have this rewritten by robots. It has their personality. If you look at each of the writers of the New Testament, you can begin to see glimpses of their, uh, their personhood, their, their uniqueness. And so if you're studying the original Greek, you, you learn for the first time, you know not to start as you're learning Greek. To, to interpret or try and translate Luke. Because Luke is a very intelligent person. His Greek is very good and it's very hard. The very first books you usually read and translate are John's. Because John, not necessarily that he was more uneducated, but he was writing to a, a more accessible mass. And so his letters are much simpler. And it carries their personalities. It carries their kind of uniqueness, their idiosyncrasies. You see it all in the New Testament. Because it was a human letter. But it's also fully God. Let me give you an example of why the humanness matters. Like, and I, I want to say this very carefully because if you rip this out of context or tweet it, I could seem like a heretic. But imagine if I wrote parts of the Bible. Now, don't, don't, please don't ever tweet that. 
or say, repeat that in the right context. But if I had wrote parts of the Bible, you would have songs in it, right? Because I sing in my sermons and that. You would have references to 80s movies. You would have like weird comments about hunting in Michigan that I grew up in. You would have, you know, this story about how I love the, the you know, I still love the, 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 the tigers, but now I'm, you know, now trying to root for the, the giants and things like that. If I wrote parts of the New Testament, you would have me coming out in that. You see that. You see that in the differences between Matthew and Luke, and you see that difference between James and Jude, and you see that difference why the writer of Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote that letter, because it comes across different than Paul, although some people think Paul wrote that letter. It's unique. It's, it's fully human. But it's also fully God. Because if it was a human letter, yeah, there's lots of good things that we could read from humans. Helpful things. But it would still be fallible. It would still be full of errors, and it really it can't save you. But if it's fully God, it can do something very different. And it says in verse 21 that even though it was from men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Many people will take that to be an image of how inspiration happened. Was the apostles were sailboats. And they opened their sails, and the Holy Spirit, who's often defined as the wind, would carry them exactly where they go. So through the Holy Spirit, they would be writing the very words of God. Though through from them still. I like to think about it. I, I saw this this past Friday, so it kind of confirmed this for me. I was thinking about it, carried along. When you have little kids and they're learning to walk, right around two to three and a half, two to four years old, they can walk. Like I see a baby back there, right? So, so the, some of those kids can walk. But if you're trying to help a, one and a, half, like a kid who's just learned to walk or not very confident in walking, and you, let them, you don't let them just walk across a street, right? What you do is you grab their hand, and they're kind of like a drunk person, right? Because that's what they're like. But you, you, dra- you carry them. They're doing the walking, kind of, but you are literally taking them safely across the street because you are guiding them where they're going. And that is how the Holy Spirit works. Yes, it's through the person. Yes, they're still coming. it's coming out who they are, but it is God who is giving them and working through them the very words that God wants to say. It is of man. It's fully God. It's both. It wasn't just that they were making things up. It's fully God. And so this is important to understand. Because if it's fully God and fully man, then this word is God's word. You need to come back to God's word. Anytime someone speaks from this platform or tries to have authority over your life, you need to see and trust that person, not because of what, just what they say, but because it actually is God's word. Acts 17, you see Paul preaching in, Ber- in Berea. And so it says like, the Bereans tested Paul's teaching against the Word of God. We need to be more like that. That you don't just take us for what we say, but you go back to Scripture. We need to be people who are in Scripture. Just this past month, I had someone email me, because they were just looking us up on, online, and they wanted to convince me, because they're a new church in San Francisco, that their pastor has a, a special understanding where they can unlock the secrets of Revelation. I'm like, no, you know, I'm going to go to Scripture on this. And some people may not be so obvious like that, but there are many, many people who want to tell you this is what God has for your life, and it has nothing to do with God. And we want to be people who are in Scripture, because it is God's divine word, and that's the only place where it has authority over your life. You should be cautious. If anyone says, well, I know something that you can't know, or I have a special way of looking at it that you know, only I have, that's, that's something suspect. 
Now, those are the two reasons why God's Word is authoritative. Peter wants us to understand that. It is based on eyewitness accounts. It is divinely inspired, not just human thoughts and invention. It's not. Now, why does this matter for us? I want to give us two concluding thoughts. The first one is, why, why trust the authority of God's Word? Is it just because we need to have intellectual understanding or be really good at apologetics so we can defend against other people? I want to impress upon you that the purpose of submitting and knowing God's Word is not just shaping your mind, although we need to shape our mind. It's not just getting information so we can defend our faith, although we should get information to defend our faith. It's not just so that we can be biblically literate, although biblical literacy is a really good thing. Actually, the point of Scripture from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is always about worshiping Jesus. And actually, I miss that. As much as I studied systematic theology and remembered these verses from it, I always missed, until this week, looking at verse 16. Look at it with me again. This is from the very beginning. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Made known to you the power and coming of Jesus. Many of us are taught in church Kind of innocently, I don't think it's a negative thing that we're trying to teach this, but you remember the phrase, you know, the Bible, the acronym, basic instructions before living eternally? Like things like that. Basic instructions before leaving earth or things like that. But then what ends up happening is that we end up teaching and discipling people that the Bible is just a book of rules. And there are commands to follow. We are, to make disciples, we have to teach them all that Jesus said and help them obey it. That's true. But it is not reduced to a mere book of instructions and things to do and things to avoid. It is ultimately to show us how beautiful Jesus really is and how much we really need Him. It's this big announcement that we have a God who made us, but we all rejected Him. Everyone did. Even all the heroes in the Bible that we look to. And we need this Jesus. How many of us grew up in Sunday school? And again, I I think they're innocent. No one really is using these negatively, but they end up crafting a discipleship that minimizes the point of the Bible. And so we have Sunday school lessons where it's like, dare to be Daniel, or trust like Timothy, or move like Moses, or believe like Barnabas, or persevere like Paul, or smack him around like Samson, right? So you have just silly things, kind of memorable alliteration, and pastors like alliteration. But, you know, if you look at the Bible only as models of it, here, here's a great guy, be like him. And every religion in the world does that. What's the difference of this scripture? It's to bring you to see there's a Savior. To see the beauty of Jesus who actually lived the life you could not live. Every single one of those heroes, you look at them more closely, they've all failed in some way. Reading this book on a kind of semi-regular basis, maybe every few years I reread. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book and some stuff about preaching. And he, he talks about um, the difference between preaching and uh, lecture and the difference between preaching and a motivational speech. And I think that's sometimes, sadly, the tension we have. Sometimes we think good preaching is you, you have a ton of information or sometimes you, you just have a whole bunch of things you need to do. And he, he says it very helpfully for me. It's always stuck in my memory. The goal of a lecture is that you would leave with a page full of notes. And it's not that it's bad. I, I hope that my sermons are into intelligible, that they're understandable, that you can walk away. If you tried to listen, you weren't half asleep, that you would actually 
try and walk away. I, I get what he was saying. I hope it's understandable. It's also not a motivational speech alone, right? Because the goal of a motivational speech, you go to the motivational speaker, is to leave pumped up and you have a whole list of things you have to do. But preaching, he says, I get this, if it's about the coming and the, the power of Jesus, the goal of preaching is not a lecture alone. It's not motivational alone. It's actually mostly about worship of Jesus. When you leave church, there are a lot of people, when they think about, was church good today? Or would you get out of church? I pray that we would begin to ask a very different question. Did you encounter Jesus today? So when you listen to a sermon, was it a good sermon? Yes, there's lots of ways you could gauge whether it's good or not. And there are many things that I need to improve on, even in my preaching. But I pray that through the Holy Spirit, that when you think about, was that a good sermon? Or was that a good day at church? You would answer and ask that question based upon, was Jesus made more beautiful before my eyes. There's always a point in church that you should think about this moment and it shifts and you should ask the Holy Spirit to give this to you where it becomes a, a, just an understanding, it be, more than that, it becomes more than just here's what I need to respond with, but you stop and you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is so good. There should always be that moment in church where you're, you're, you just stop and like, Jesus is amazing. He's done for me what I could not do and I'm blown away by that. I'm, I'm, melt, I'm broken by that because I need Him. I don't just need a great example. I need a Savior. That's one important thing I think we should come away with when we think about the authority of the Word of God. It should not just lead us to understand it better, although we do need to understand it better. It should lead you to worship Jesus. And last kind of reflection, I think we really need to grasp that the Word of God is the weapon we need. It is the weapon we need. There's a, a skeptic uh, who actually sadly grew up in the church, went to some of the best evangelical institutions. He is now a skeptic whose main goal is to wipe away young people's faith. His name is Bart Ehrman. He teaches at the University of North Carolina, UNC. And I've heard, I had students uh, from past youth groups who've gone to UNC and they've taken his class and they told me this story. You know how he starts his class? He asks his class, like, how many of you believe and it's a southern area, so many people are coming from conservative areas who know God and went to church and trust the Bible. And he asked the students, how many of you believe that God's word, or the Bible is God's word? And then usually two-thirds, a majority of his class would say, yes, I believe this is God's word. And he holds up Harry Potter. He's like, how many of you have read this book? And usually something like two-thirds of the class have read this book now, especially nowadays. Although, I'll, I'll confess this to you. I've seen only one Harry Potter movie and I've never read a single book. So I don't even, don't spoil it for me. I don't, I'm amazed. I still don't know how it's ending. I'm waiting because I'm waiting for Malia to want to read it and then I'll kind of read it along with her. So I'm trying to make it. I still don't know what happens to Harry. Although I kind of have guesses. Don't tell me. Don't tell me what happens to him. But he holds up Harry Potter. He's like, how many of you read this? Two thirds of the class. Then he holds up his Bible. How many of you have read this book? And almost always, it's less than one hand. And he says, you know what? You say this is the word of God and you never read it. So I don't believe you that you think this is the word of God. And I'm going to spend the rest of this semester making sure that you don't believe this is the word of God. <laughs> this is happening everywhere in our culture. I think this is important, especially yesterday as, as I was thinking about all the, how beautiful it was to see so many of our young kids 
uh, who are running around playing with, since we haven't gathered like that as a church since the pandemic, and, and the stewardship of our little kids, and not just little kids, many of you who are youth, middle school, high school, like those of you who trust in Jesus today in those ages, how much you will face, not just from professors like Bart Ehrman, but the culture and people. We are in a world that's dark. And this is the light. Are we devoted to it? I mean, Bart Ehrman, in some ways, I think is very poignant and very correct. If you believe this is the word of God, but you've never read it, does that make any sense? If this is a light in a dark world, why would we not go to it? One of the days that I, I will never forget for the rest of my life, there's many days like that, but one of them was during the pandemic, September 9th, 2020. You guys remember that day? It was the day in the Bay Area, at least, it was dark and red all day. Remember that day? I will never forget the day. It felt like a biblical, like an apocalyptic kind of day. So I'll never forget it. But imagine it was like that, not just one day, but weeks. And then someone said, well, there's a, there's a way we can resolve this and get light back and normal life. Would you not go to it? Have you ever been in a place that's pitch black? Have you camped in an area and it was maybe overcast and there's no starlight, no moonlight, and it's just dark? Would you not want any kind of way to get light? And that is what verse 19 says. And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star rising meaning that when Jesus returns, the sun will, you don't need a sun anymore because the glory of God will light eternity. Until that time though, this is light in darkness. This is a weapon. This is how we begin to anchor ourselves, and make it to the end. If we believe this is the Word of God, but we've never read it, we've never tucked it away in our hearts, never anchored our, our minds and our hearts around it, do we believe it? And we have this. It's not just pages of man's words. This is God's Word. And we read at the beginning of worship, it never returns void. It always, and Paul says in Second Timothy, it is good for tra- it's good for it's God breathed. It's good for making us ready for this world, ready to receive Jesus, ready to be like Jesus. If you had this light in a dark place, why would we not go do it? Or think about it another way. Think about movies today a lot for some reason. But this past week, I was driving to the Presidio, past uh, the Palace of Fine Arts, to work with this organization on church planting I work with. And I don't often drive by the Palace of Fine Arts, but every time I do, I think of the movie The Rock. How many, how many love, this is one of my favorite movies. I don't, they don't make movies like this. How many love The Rock? You've seen The Rock? I feel like it's mostly older, those of us who are older now. Anyone in middle school, have you seen The Rock? Who's the, you've seen The Rock? Okay, good. So it's still going. It's a great movie. I'm going to spoil it for you, but I don't really feel bad because it's like 25 years old or something now. So sorry if you've never seen it, but I encourage you to go watch it if you've never seen it, but I'm going to give you some spoilers. But in this movie, they create this, I forgot the name of the weapon, but there's a biomedical weapon that's like this gas, but it's like encapsulated in these like green orbs that are size of a little bit bigger than a golf ball. And Nicholas Cage's character near the end of the movie, he's fighting on Alcatraz, which is amazing scenes, right? And he's fighting there and he's in this battle with this guy and he, one, one orb gets loose. But you know, if the gas 
orb gets out, everyone within the vicinity of smelling it will like have their face melt off, right? But he's in this fight, and he like in this grand moment puts it in his mouth, and he like punches his face and he bites it, and that guy's face melts off, but he's like exposed, right? And there's a but there's a there's a way to save yourself. If you remember the movie, right? There's a there's a there's an antidote. There's something that can save you from the death of the gas. And it's this needle that's like this big, right? He gets this thing out, and you watch, you watch him hold it and open it. You're like, it's better to die than to stab yourself. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's huge. He has to stab himself in the heart in order to survive. But if he doesn't, he'd die. I mean, I'm thinking, it's maybe better to die. I don't want to stab myself in the heart with this huge... That's the thing I remember most from the movie, is just stabbing himself in the heart. And he does it. He lives, because as it's pumping antidote into his life, he lives. If you were exposed to life-threatening gas that would take your face, take your life, would you not use the antidote? We live in a dark world. But we need light. But we not also then go to the source of light. Friends, this is important not just because it's, we want you to understand and get a bunch of facts, but this is life. This is light in a dark world. I pray that as Peter has reminded his church and reminding us through his word that you would be convicted, you would be comforted, you would be encouraged to look at the word of God as authoritative, as trustworthy, as giving light, literal light. Do you know how God created light? He said, let there be, through the word, let there be light. In the same way, this word is that power. If you look at the end, and actually, if you look at Revelation, amazing, crazy, it's kind of hard to read at times. The one part that always kind of disappointed me about the book of Revelation is how God defeats Satan. He says one word. It's like, oh my gosh, all of this? And he, that's this. The same word that made everything. The same word that will take out Satan is what we have. I pray that we would begin to trust it and digest it and have it in us. Friends, this is the authority of the Word, and it gives us life. It points us to Jesus, and I pray that that's what's happening in our worship today. Would you pray? Would you take a moment in response for yourself just to ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me Jesus in the way I need Jesus today? Would you ask that question of the Holy Spirit? Reveal to me what I need to understand or respond to when it comes to Jesus. Jesus, I confess, is far too easy to talk about you and not taste and see how good you are and your work on my behalf is. Teach me to hunger and thirst for your word. Guard me, Lord, from a professional talker. That I would be a secret worshiper so that the, the mark of my life would not be gauged upon what I do on a Sunday, but gauged upon how I pursue you, Lord. Father, I pray for my friends who do not yet know you. Maybe that's something they're acknowledging. Maybe that's something they're even unaware of. 
Father, I pray that this word, that Jesus would come alive to them today. That you would do something that just unexplainable would cause them to long and want you. It'll be nothing else can explain it but your spirit. Would you do that work, Lord? Would you make Jesus real? May you make his death and resurrection good to them today. Because it's only your spirit who can do that. Father, I pray for my friends who know you and love you. All of us know when it comes to the Word of God, we could be in it more. We can memorize it. We, we can do, always do more. And so, Father, may you convict us where we do need that conviction. May you also pour grace so that we would long for it. May it be like a love letter that it is to us. May it be like a beautiful experience that it is. May your Spirit do all that work in us who know you and love you, Lord. I pray that we would be a church that is anchored on your word, under its authority, proclaiming it in not just formal ways, but in our lives. And may the next generation of our church take that further, Lord, be firmly anchored, firmly in you. May they be more faithful to live and obey than we are even, Lord. I pray that you would do that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.